right. I'm directing your attention this afternoon, this evening, to the book of Ezekiel. And I'm reading from Ezekiel, the eighth chapter. This is a little something I feel like the Lord laid on my heart today. Ezekiel chapter 8, and I'll begin with verse number 1. It came to pass that the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as they sat in mine house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell there upon me. And then I beheld, and lo, like a likeness, like the appearance of a fire, and from the appearance of his loins, even downward fire, and from his loins, even upward, as the appearance of a brightness and the color of amber. He put forth the form of an hand, and he took me by the lock of mine head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven, and brought me to the, in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, according to the vision that I saw in the plain. And then he said unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now, the way toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. And he said furthermore unto me, Son of man, Seest thou what they do, even the great abominations that the house of Israel committed here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see a greater, a greater abominations. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we pray right now for the word of the Lord, and I pray, God, that you would stir up our hearts, Stir up our souls toward the Lord, I pray. That we would turn our hearts solely unto you, Lord God, and give you, God, that which you deserve and that which you desire. Our praise, our worship for the glory of the Lord. God, the majesty of the Lord is a great thing. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks right now. Amen. Let the church give God a big hand. Praise. You may be seated tonight. I want to speak to you tonight about images of jealousy and holes in the walls. And I want to ask you a question. And as I speak to you tonight, I want you to ponder your answer very carefully. Are you really and truly saved right now? And if your soul should be required in eternity tonight... Do you have an assurance that you are living a life that would be acceptable to God? Are you really and truly saved right now? If you had to die and face the Lord, would you be ready? And this is the most important question of all when it comes time to die. Nothing else matters so much as the answer to that question. And so little can be done to make what to make right what isn't right when it comes time to die. You just don't have time to get your house in order and to do things over. I'm sure that we all have do-overs that we wish we could do, regrets, things in life, choices, decisions, consequences that we've 
had made and endured that, we, that if we could do over now, we would do it differently. But when it comes time to die, there really isn't time to do any do-overs. There's, there's not time for making a second appeal. There's, there's really not time to get things squared away and get them right. And I believe, though, that that question can be resolved and that one can feel assurance, an assurance from God even in the moment where there will be peace with the Creator in our heart. I believe that that is a position that is possible to obtain. With due consideration, we all can achieve that place with God. So I want you to think about these things as I talk to you tonight. And before we delve into that, uh, we want to... Uh, get in tonight to the meat of Ezekiel, the 8th chapter. But as I'm heading in that direction, there are some important facts that, that would be worthy to consider when we take up this text of Scripture tonight. The year was 591 B.C., and the month was the month of September. One thing very unique about the prophecies of Ezekiel was that was the chronology, that he was... Above all the other prophets, so very careful to give dates for his prophecies. When you read and back study Ezekiel, you will find time and time again where he recorded the date that the prophecy was given. So that we can, uh, we can uh, specifically know when those prophecies occurred and we can place them within the context of historical events, which helps us to really understand what God was saying and why he was saying it. Ezekiel was a prophet of the captivity. He was carried into Babylon in 597 B.C., 11 years before Jerusalem was destroyed. The captivity of, of, uh, of the Israelites, of the Hebrews, of the Jewish people, lasted for 70 years, as you know, from 606 B.C. to 536 B.C. Ezekiel was there in Babylon from 597 B.C. to at least the year 570 B.C. Daniel had already been there in Babylon for nine years by the time Ezekiel got there. And Daniel had made a name for himself and achieved fame already uh, serving uh, the, the king of Babylon. Jeremiah was a contemporary, both of Daniel and Ezekiel, although he was older than, than both of them. And in fact, Ezekiel may have actually been a pupil, a student who studied under Jeremiah the priest back in, uh, back in Jerusalem, back in the day of the, the kingdom of Judah. But Ezekiel preached the same message that Jeremiah preached. Ezekiel preached to the captivity where he was the same thing that Jeremiah was preaching back in Jerusalem where he was. So I'm sure I, I have confused you. Most of you think, well, yes, well, Judah was captured and it went into 70 years of captivity. And I'm sure you think that that was a, a, an event that happened at a specific time and then moving forward chronologically 70 years occurred and they released but uh, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that 
Because you must understand history to understand the context of Ezekiel, the eighth chapter, and the destruction of Jerusalem that inevitably took place with the temple being destroyed and the city being burned. So this destruction of Jerusalem actually occurred in three stages over several years. In 606 BC, some captives were taken to Babylon, including Daniel and the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as you know them, but Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, as the Bible knows them. And then later in 597 BC, more captives were taken. There was a second removal of people into exile some years later, and Ezekiel was a part of that group. And then in 586 BC, Jerusalem was finally sacked and destroyed, and the Temple of Solomon destroyed and burnt to the ground. Ezekiel, the name Ezekiel means God strengthens. And Ezekiel was among the Judean aristocracy, and he was taken along with Jehoiachin, who was the puppet king at that time. Uh, he was taken into exile, as I said, in 597 B.C. But his prophecies before the exile foretold the imminent destruction of Jerusalem and uh, it agreed with the same predictions that Jeremiah made that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the kingdom is going to be uh, destroyed. And uh, at this time when these prophecies were being made, uh, Judea was already taken over by Babylon. It was already a vassal kingdom with a puppet king set upon the throne whose job it was to maintain the peace of Babylon and pay heavy tribute back into Babylon. After Jerusalem fell, Ezekiel stopped prophesying for 13 years before speaking again, this time a new message of hope and consolation that looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. So this is the context in which Jerusalem is speaking here in the 8th chapter of Ezekiel. I mean, in which Ezekiel is speaking the 8th chapter. Now, what was going on at this time? What was going on was that the ancient world was experiencing one of those uh, periodic power shifts when one or more would-be superpower was attempting to emerge and gain control of the world stage of trade and power and military might. Assyria had long been the dominant power in the Middle East, having conquered the northern kingdom of Israel 125 years prior to this time period. And now it was in decline. It was a weakening superpower and and the Egyptian civilization, which had had its rising and fallings, was now attempting to emerge again. Pharaoh Necho was uh, coming uh, into his own and wishing to extend his power uh, past the borders of Egypt into Canaan, into Palestine. And so the inevitable clash of superpowers and empires would occur at this time. We know some of the names of the people involved. Uh, Sennacherib 
Does that name ring a bell? Anybody recall reading about Sennacherib? Who was Sennacherib? Sennacherib was one of the kings of Assyria in the last moments of its empire, in the declining years of its empire. Sennacherib had invaded uh, Jerusalem, had invaded Judea, taken most of it, surrounded Jerusalem, and had to return back to his kingdom because of a great plague that God sent, which saved the Judean kingdom. And uh, Sennacherib returned to his home where he was assassinated uh, in a coup d'etat. And then uh, Merodach Baladin, that's another name you may not be as familiar with, his successor, now came to the throne and he had to contend with rebellion in his own domain because as the superpower of the Middle East at that time, its power controlled all of Turkey, all of Asia Minor in going into uh, the areas of uh, Turkey, Canaan, Cain Palestine, and Iraq, even to the borders of Persia. So that was quite an empire. But at this time, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, whose capital city was in Babylon, or one of their main cities was in Babylon, was, was emerging as a economical and military power and force and began to throw off the yoke of the Assyrian rule over them. And so there was a rebellion in which Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolizer, actually overthrew the Assyrian Empire and established Babylonian hegemony at this time. And it was in this very context of time where these three empires met uh, in battle that Nabopolizer and Nebuchadnezzar would now meet Pharaoh Necho at Karchemish, Karchemish which is, was a very, the site of a very famous ancient battle in which the Egyptians were defeated and the Babylonians arose to finally become the dominant power that they did become and that Daniel said that they would become uh, the head of gold, that first great empire of civilization of mankind. And so it was at this time that battle, that famous battle was fought in 604 BC, which was two years after Nebuchadnezzar had subdued Jerusalem and set up his own vassal king and established a puppet kingdom. It was in this time period that we see Jeremiah doing most of his prophecy. He had predicted to the kings before the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar would be raised up of God and that he was going to come and they'd better submit to him or else. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. And he came and he established his kingdom. And uh, he suppressed the kingdom of Judah and he set it up as a vassal kingdom. And the Egyptians now uh, were still pushing, still contending for power. And so in order to distract the Babylon, the new Babylonian emerging superpower hadn't really come, you know, it was emerging as a superpower. It, 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 its power hadn't been finalized or fully established yet. And so Egypt, Egypt was still pressing, uh, pressing its uh, claims to the, uh, to the Middle East. And, and it, in part, in politics, the geopolitics of the time was to play with these vassal kingdoms who didn't want to be submitted to a big kingdom like Babylon to play with them 
and to, uh, uh, to uh, flatter them with vanity and to promise them riches and freedom if they would switch sides. All you have to do now is back us when we come up north and uh, we'll, we'll help you overthrow the, the, uh, the Babylonian Empire. And so it would be this type of geopolitical deal that would come into play here. The Judeans didn't want to be submitted to Babylon, didn't want to pay heavy tribute. And so again and again, they would listen to the Egyptians and back the Egyptians up. But the Egyptians were not strong enough to defeat Nebuchadnezzar. And so they would lose time and time again and when they did, again, Jerusalem would suffer the consequence. And so there would be three phases now of, of total, uh, to reach the point of total domination. And so the destruction of Jerusalem that you think of beginning the 70 years of captivity would be that, that final moment when Nebuchadnezzar had had enough with setting up puppet kings, which were relatives in some way or another to the Davidic line or the Davidic uh, dynasty. He, he got tired of setting up uncles and cousins and whatever, and, and they, they um, betrayed him and betrayed his interest, and so he would destroy Jerusalem. Jeremiah had warned the Judeans not to resist Babylon, but they didn't listen to him, nor did they listen to Ezekiel. So where you're, when you're reading Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and especially the first parts of those books, from now on, when you read them, you'll, you'll have an understanding of what they were saying and who they were speaking to. They were speaking to Judean kings before the Babylonian captivity, warning them. Now the reason why this should be, and you would think, well, they're God's people. Uh, God should defend them. God should help them. God should preserve them and save them. Yes, they were God's people, but they never acted like God's people. They did not act like God's people at all. God didn't even, wouldn't even know them or recognize them. They constantly were going to be rebellious and idolatrous. And so all of these things that God was doing was to, was to correct them. And correction is sometimes important, isn't it? It's important. If we never are corrected, we will go on our headstrong ways and we will inevitably have consequences that are going to be very bad for us and very bad for other people if we don't get corrected. You correct your children because you don't want them to suffer consequences later on for things that they could get hurt by. They need to know when to stop. And God's people wouldn't listen to the correction. They were stubborn and they constantly resisted like a headstrong child who will not be corrected. They would not be corrected. And the discipline and the punishments kept piling up and they kept getting worse and worse and worse. And what do you do with a child that will not be corrected? What do you do with a headstrong child that you cannot, you cannot get them to listen to? Eventually, you have to take some serious action in order to stop them if you're interested in, in correcting them or stop them. You're going to have to do something very serious to get their attention. There has to be a wake-up call. People who live lives without discipline in their lives, without the ability to self-correct, are the people who inevitably somebody has to do an intervention on, right? You have to do an intervention on that person if you care about them because they won't, they haven't listened to anything. Anybody's, and, 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 and usually that person 
will have to hit rock bottom at some point. They actually have to hit, they have to bottom out before it finally dawns on them, I should listen and do uh, what, what people who care about me tell me to do. For my own good, I should listen. And so it would be with God's people here. So when Jehoiakim of Judea refused to pay tribute to the Babylonians, they captured Jerusalem and they deported for the second time some of the population, including Ezekiel. Jehoiakim's successor, Zedekiah, also followed the bad advice of the Egyptians, and that's when Nebuchadnezzar finally had had enough and destroyed Jerusalem. What a sad day it was for Zedekiah, if you recall. He had to watch as all of his sons were killed before his eyes. And then he had to have his eyes punched out. And for the rest of his life, stayed in prison in Babylon with the last memory of the sight of his children being killed. Why? Because he refused to listen to the prophets of God. And he gave heed, rather, to those who wanted to uh, support the Egyptians who failed to deliver on their promises. So this, this is the context of Ezekiel the 8th chapter. So Ezekiel the 8th chapter is taking place in Babylon 14 months after Ezekiel's initial call to prophets, to the prophecy, to the office of being a prophet. He had been called one year and two months prior. Here in this vision, he is caught up in a rapturous vision and taken back to Jerusalem. And here God shows him what's going on back in Jerusalem. So I had to say all that so that you could understand that Jerusalem still had not yet been destroyed. There was still a temple there. There were still people there in Jerusalem and the worship of God should still be going on in Solomon's temple. It had not been overthrown yet. But Ezekiel was taken back in a rapture, in a vision, and he saw what was going on. Schofield says that the combined effect of the four visions of profanation in chapter 8 is idolatry set up in the entire temple. So he sees these four visions. They're all taking place at different points in the temple, but all of them are terribly disturbing because they show how bad the spirituality is back home in Jerusalem. And so there's this mention of the image of jealousy. Who was the image of jealousy? The image of jealousy was likely Astarte, which was the Syrian Venus, or the, or the goddess, the female goddess. And secret animal worship was going on. Nature worship was going on. The nature worship of the Canaanites, the pagans, and the uh, animal worship of the Egyptians was taking place place in addition to uh, this image of jealousy. There was a vision of, of the temple walls being covered with paintings of every abominable creature and every kind of an animal god or deity that the people were there worshiping. And, and what was shocking was that this worship was being led by no less than Jeazaniah II, whose father, Shaphan, had been a leader in King Josiah's great reformation. So at a time of spiritual return to God and true worship, a time when the temple had been cleansed and had been uh, repaired 
and the book had been found of the law and had been read and the people wept and the people worshiped and a great reformation was going on. A man's father had been a part of that and now this descendant, this second generation of a great revival, of a great spiritual turnaround, was actually leading in worship of idol images and leading in idol worship. In addition to which, this man's brothers, Ahikam and Gamariah, who were also close friends of the prophet Jeremiah, even though Jeremiah was prophesying against all of this idolatry and wickedness, his close friends were involved in it behind his back as well. Now this is an amazing context, is it not? Something really to think fully and profoundly upon. We can see a little bit more about what they were doing because Tammuz is mentioned here. The women, the women were involved and they were sitting there in the temple of the court weeping for Tammuz. Who is Tammuz? Well, Tammuz was the Babylonian Adonis or the male god, the consort of Astarte. And his worship was celebrated in wild orgies of immoral indulgence. Lockyer says that women were given over to these uh, cults and uh, the Hebrew Greek key study Bible says that Tammuz was an Assyrian fertility god and that weeping for him was supposed to bring him back from the dead. And the sun also was being worshipped. The sun was worshipped in Egypt. The sun was worshipped in Canaan and in other places. And uh, this branch that the women put to their, that the people put to their nose, uh, according to uh, the key Bible, was uh, may refer to obscene rituals associated with the worship of Asherah or Ishtar. What else could God do but severely punish those departing from him in such licentious ways, says Lockyer. Chapter 8 depicts God's glory departing from the temple by stages from the inner temple. In chapter 9, I'm sorry, the glory begins to depart. It doesn't go all at once, but it leaves in stages. It starts first from the altar and then goes to the threshold and stays there. I'm leaving, I'm walking out on you, but I don't want to. I'm reluctant to, to leave, but I'm leaving. I'll get up off the altar and I'll leave it. You won't feel me there anymore, but I'm standing at the threshold waiting for you to get right and turn back to me and come back. And then, and then if you don't, I'm gonna take the next step and I'm gonna stand in the foyer. I'm gonna stand in the foyer in the lobby. I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna wait and see if anybody changes their mind comes around to me and does right. But in chapter 8, in chapter 8, the glory hadn't departed yet. All of these wicked things. Oh, my Lord, I feel such goosebumps. There's such an anointing coming over me. Amen. What I, what I have to say to you, church, is a message from God. Hallelujah. In chapter 8, these things were going on, but the anointing was still there. It hadn't left yet. It hadn't been, it was provoked, but it had not gone yet. There was still an opportunity. There was still going to be a chance, amen, to turn things around and to get things right. <clears throat> so what does all this mean? And how does it help to answer the question 
that I asked you at the beginning of my uh, speech tonight. Well, here's the layup. Judah, the kingdom of Judah and God's people were between a rock and a hard place. Once these superpowers began to move across their land and vie for power, they inevitably became pawns on this great geopolitical chessboard. And they were going to be pushed in one direction or another. Things were changing. Great changes were taking place. The nation was in flux. It was neither here nor there. Nobody knew what tomorrow would bring. Nobody could understand the changes that would be made in the economy, in the culture, in the finances, in the property. You couldn't invest. You wouldn't know where to put your money. Nothing was safe. Nobody understood what was going to happen. But every, everybody understood that things were changing and about to change and get worse. So, so many great changes, so many great uncertainties. Would Babylon prevail? Would they win the day and rule the land? Would another superpower come to the rescue of the kingdom of Judah? Who do you trust in this time? Do you trust Jehovah's few obscure and unknown prophets that are running around preaching a strong message, get right with God? Or do you trust the priest and the priestcraft of the pagan and Canaanite religions that have prevailed in the culture for hundreds of years? And we've never deviated from the worship and the culture of these people for all these hundreds of years, and their customs are embedded in us and our family and our thinking. Do we go with what we know, or do we listen to some obscure uh, a reactionary uh, a prophet, amen, that nobody believes in? Or do you trust a Jehovah that nobody's heard from, and you don't know whether he'll answer prayer or not, or do you go with what you know to do? These were the times and the conditions. Could God be trusted? Does he hear when I pray? Should I look out for myself? Should I take care of myself? Or should I follow God with my whole heart? Should I just be worried about me and mine and my interest? And, 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 and securing my security and my pleasure and what I want out of life? Or should I really... Go in for God with my whole heart. Because we don't know what's going to happen and where we're going to wind up and what's going to become of any of us. We don't know these things. We're on shaky ground. Our world is in a shaky place. We just don't know what tomorrow will bring. But we know who controls tomorrow. But what I want to know tonight is do we really believe in Jehovah God? Do we really believe in our God? Do we really believe in our Bible? Or are we scrambling with our nose to the grindstone? Amen. And our hearts in this world, in this life, trying to make our way. Or have we given everything that we can give to God? Hallelujah. What this message shows me tonight 
was that there was a temple there. And there were people in that temple. And they were there for the purpose of worship. And on the outside, in everyday worship, they were going through the motions of worshiping Jehovah God on the outside. But Ezekiel saw what no one else saw but God. Ezekiel didn't see the outside in the motions and the ritual. He didn't see them coming in faith and worship and prayer. He didn't see them thinking Pentecost and just thinking it and, and looking good. He saw through the hole in the wall. Amen. He looked and he saw through the hole in the wall. And there was a door there. Amen. The people had known how to plaster over the secret doorway to the spiritual compartmentalization and confusion that was really going on in their life. Amen. They had plastered it over and covered it over. But Ezekiel was able to see through the hole in the wall. And the, there was a door there that shouldn't have been there. And when he walked through the door, he saw people, even that ought to have been leading through worship, but their heart was somewhere else. Their life was somewhere else. Their attitude was somewhere else. This is really profound, church. It's a very profound message. Hallelujah. Amen. And it asked us, amen, it asked us to strip away the facade. It asked us. Why do you come to church? And what are you doing when you come to church? More specifically, what are you doing with your life for God at all times? What really are you about? Hallelujah. What's really most important to you? Is it you and what you want? And your fun and your entertainment and your pleasure and your security and your job security and your interest in your finances, or are you sold out? Are you sold out to God? Hallelujah. Because God is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. Hallelujah. You got a wife and you're married to your wife. She don't want you looking around. She don't want you looking around. Your, your husband, wives, your husband, he don't want you flirting with some other guys. Flirting and all being all laughy and, you know, oh, isn't he great? He doesn't want that. In a relationship, you've got to be all in. And if you're not all in, people know it. And the one you're with knows it. And God is not going to be second best. He's not going to have second place in nobody's life. God will be honored. He will be honored. He will be respected. He will be worshipped His way. His own way. He demands complete obedience and love and loyalty. You're either all in or you're not at all in with God. You're either all in or you're not at all in with God. When he comes back looking for his bride, he wants to marry a woman 
a bride clothed in white, which is the righteousness of the saints, with her lamp full of oil and her wick trimmed and her heart prepared and ready to meet the bridegroom. He's not going to come look for some second best. Uh, I'll take you if nobody else comes along. Hallelujah. God is not all about if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you with. He's not about that at all. He says, you wait for me or I won't have anything to do with you at all. I am a jealous God. So what images of jealousy do you put before God? What do you miss church for? What do you run off and do this and that for? What do you give your time and your money and your effort and your energy for? Where is your real heart and your real love? What images of jealousy do you put before God? How have you either served the Lord, putting him before all other things, or not served him by doing what you wanted to do first? And if there was any time, money, or effort left over, you'd think about giving it to God. This is serious, people, because God is a jealous God. What holes in the walls of your life would reveal a doorway to spiritual confusion? What spiritual compartmentalization has been going on making you the perfect hypocrite who on the outside looks like you're one of God's, but on the inside you're facing to the east. You got your eyes on the sun. You're bowing down to images of jealousy and abominable things are going on in your life. Jesus said, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things shall be added unto you. What are all these things? Well, it's not all the playthings and the toys and the fun and the vacations that you want, but it's your food, your housing, and your clothing, and your necessities of life he's promised to give you. But what we have to do is do him first. He's not saying to us, I will bless you and then you do for me. He's saying, seek me first. Seek me first. Seek my righteousness first. Seek me first. Seek me first. Seek me first, and then I will add unto you. Or do you add those things first, leaving little left over to seek God in your life? These are things that matter. They're things for which you will have to give an account to God. They're things which will keep you out of the rapture and heaven and eternity with God. Unless you live and believe and know with all assurance that you're all in when it comes to God first. God first. Hallelujah. Joshua said, I don't know what you people are going to do, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're entering into a promised land. We're entering to the hope of everything that's ever been before us. God said he would give us this and he would bless us. Amen. God wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. But before he will bless you, you've got to be all in. 
You've got to prove your love and your loyalty to God. Amen. If you're not paying your tithe, you, you, you better pay your tithe because you can't expect God to bless you if you're going to rob from God and steal from God. You're not all in. Your salvation begins with your wallet and with your pocketbook because you put your money where your heart is. And you've got money for things you want to do. But when it comes to God, are you doing right by him? This is not a sermon to get your money, but it is, it is one to speak to your heart because that's where your heart is. We lay up for ourselves treasures where our heart is. The Bible said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. I'm closing. We're standing together tonight. This altar is open. This altar is open. You know, I thank God for conviction. The one thing I care about in my life more than anything else is am I right with God? I care about that more than I care about this church having revival or your health or your welfare or your spiritual life. Because if I can't be fixed, I can't help anybody else be fixed. And the thing I care most about is, is my heart right with God? And it's a constant theme of every prayer of my life every day. Make my heart right with God. Give me a heart after God. Make my heart tender toward the Lord. And I thank God for conviction. Some people don't like conviction. This is not about guilting you. And if you feel guilt, you're feeling the wrong thing. Because guilt is not conviction. Guilt is not conviction. Guilt is an arrest, but it's not a conviction. But we need a conviction. We need to be convicted by God. And conviction brings us to the point of spiritual release. What we need more than anything is that flowing out of the, of the Spirit of God in our lives through us and through us with wave after wave of peace and holiness and purity where He's washing us and cleansing our heart and we can feel it and we can know in that moment I'm saved. If anything happens to me, now I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I have peace with God. And if you're living for God and you can't have that and you don't know that, Amen. Then you're the one I'm talking to. Amen. Get out from behind the hole in the wall. Amen. And stop being a hypocrite. Amen. And stop faking it and start living it. Hallelujah. Can anybody come and pray tonight? Amen. Anybody want to come and pray tonight? Amen. Let's come and let's pray. Amen. Lord, humble me in the altar. Make me repentant. Make me contrite. Give me a, a contrite spirit and a pure heart and a desire to live for God. Help me, God, to be all in, without question, wholly devoted to you, truly given over to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. If anything happens to me tonight, I want to go to heaven. If anything happens to me tonight, I want to go to heaven. I'm not going through the motions because what good is that? I'm not faking it because what good is that? I want you to convict me, Lord. I want you to humble me. I want you to touch me. I want you to arrest me. I want you to turn me around. I don't want to get caught up in this world. I don't want to be taken over by the cares of life. I want to be God first. I want to be church first. I want to be worship first. I want to be giving first. I want to be out front, Lord, when it comes to serving God. Don't make them have to beg me to help you. I want to be out there begging for an opportunity to serve God and to do His work. 
Hallelujah. Help me, God, to be all in. I want to be all in. Hallelujah. I need you, Jesus, to bring me to a point of conviction. Bring me to a point of conviction. Turn me around. God, help me to become a fireman for God. I know this world is confused. We're caught up in confusion. Changes. There's a flux. Lord, but I want to stay focused on what's spiritually true and right. Help me, God, tonight. Help me, Jesus, in your name. Help me, Jesus, in your name. Help me, Jesus, in your name. To stay focused on you, Lord. In the name of Jesus. 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 Name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, let my heart be fixed on God. Let my heart be fixed on God. Let my heart be fixed on God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Not to lose my spiritual focus. Not to lose my spiritual way. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Keep me full of the Holy Ghost. Keep me full of the Holy Ghost. Let me always be tender to God. Let me be tender to the Lord. Help me to be tender, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Jesus, I need you. I need you tonight. I need you tonight. I need you tonight, Lord. I need you tonight. Jesus, I need you tonight. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, it's a hard thing. We live, we live in the last days, and the Laodicean spirit is strong. It's very strong. And we don't really realize or recognize how much in trouble we are. This church is in trouble. It's in trouble. I mean, we, we're facing a potential promised land for God here, but we're not there. We're not there at all because we are so full of ourselves, so selfish, so busy, so distracted. We cannot get up and do what we need to do for God. Hallelujah. It's time we put our hearts all in this. Our hearts need to be all in this. Amen. Jesus, help me. Help me, Lord, to live it. Help me to live it. Help me to, help me to breathe it. Hallelujah. Let it, let it. Listen, if it hasn't taken you over, something else has. This needs to take you over. It needs to own you. God needs to own you. And if he doesn't, something else does. And that's the problem. That's why God can't do anything with us. Because we don't know who we belong to. But we don't belong to ourselves. He purchased us. He bought us with a price. We belong to him. Hallelujah. And, and that needs to be our whole attitude, our whole motivation. To, to really be God's people. To be marching in his army. To be possessing his promised land. We have to be together. We have to be as a group. And we have to be all in. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Lord, I plead the blood right now for the church. Lord Jesus, I plead the blood for the church. And I pray for a strong spirit of conviction, Lord, to bring us back to a revival place. Bring us to a revival place, Lord Jesus. That when we, when we do this, Lord, let's, let's do it with our whole heart. Let's, let's put everything into it. Let's just put everything into it. Hallelujah. Let's, let's be here. Let's, let's stand up. Let's be counted. Let's be strong. Let's be for God. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name.
Jesus' name. God bless you. Thank you. We're dismissed in Jesus' name.